At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But then, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and relying upon His Holy Spirit this evening, let's look at verse 5 of the passage that we just read, where we find the Apostle Paul as he's expounding Christian love and the indispensable necessity of true Christian love. He tells us that love thinks no evil. Love thinks no evil. This word think is a word that's used typically uh, by Paul when he's expounding the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When he says that uh, Abraham believed and it was accredited to him or counted to him, or accounted to Him, or reckoned to Him unto righteousness, that word accounted, or counted, or reckoned, or imputed, is the same word here for the word think. Love reckons no evil. Love 
keeps no tally, counting up evil, keeping a record of wrongs. Many different translations here seeking to bring out the meaning of this statement that love thinks no evil. But before we dive into the significance of that statement, let's remind ourselves of the context in which we find this particular passage of Scripture. This passage is well known. We've been considering it off and on for maybe a year now, I'm not sure. And every time we come back to it, it's important to be aware of what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us here that everything can look pristine, even impressive, potentially even perfect to the outward eye. You could have someone with the tongue of men and of angels, someone eloquent in their speech concerning the Word of God, the truth of God, the mysteries of the Christian religion. There are many mysteries in the Christian faith. We can think about the doctrine of the Trinity. We can think about uh, the biblical doctrine of the end times in the book of Revelation. And we can think about many challenging aspects of biblical revelation. It is possible for someone to have what we seem, from our perspective, what seems to be a mastery of these particular topics, an impressive knowledge concerning them, and an ability to communicate them in a way that is pleasing to the ear, eloquent, edifying. It's possible for someone to have faith in the power of God to the point where they, their prayers seem to be filled with such great confidence in God that they could move a mountain with their prayers. They believe in the miraculous power of God. So they don't just have all of this theological knowledge, but they seem to have a strong conviction in the miraculous power of God. Uh, they are very generous. They would literally give the shirt off their back to someone in need. They would bestow all of their goods to feed the poor. They would even die for the Christian faith. They would give their body to be burned for the name of Christ. It's possible, not to suggest that Paul is describing anyone in particular who meets all these criteria, but you see he's making a point. He's using exaggerated language to say you could be as eloquent as the greatest preacher in history, you could be as eloquent as an angel from heaven who came and proclaimed the glory of God. You could be as knowledgeable as the Apostle Paul or even more knowledgeable. You could have it all in terms of uh, every aspect of outward religion, but if you don't have this true Christian love, you've got nothing. It's a very significant point that Paul is making here. He's saying that although a tree is known by its fruits, there can be things that appear to be outward fruit that are not outward fruit. And, and the, the, the important thing to look at here is that Paul is dealing with gifts. Gifts. He's, he, he's saying that these gifts, the gift of prophecy, the gift of eloquence, the gift of this confidence in God's miraculous power, which was part of the spiritual gifts at that time, the gift uh, of, of this spirit of generosity, all of these gifts and abilities are nothing if they lack the grace of the Holy Spirit. In Corinth, the people were obsessed with gifts. They were obsessed with 
prophecy and healing and gifts of special revelation of various kinds, speaking in tongues, these outwardly impressive displays. And yet Paul is saying what is more important, the more excellent way, the more definitive demonstration of a true Christian heart of salvation is true Christian love. The grace of love in the heart that comes forth in this type of behavior. Not being a martyr or being the best preacher in history, but suffering long and being kind to other people. Not envying them, but being content and having a charitable esteem of them. Wanting them to do well. Not begrudging them. Not parading ourselves and boasting in ourselves. Not being puffed up and selfish and prideful toward other people. Not behaving rudely and in an insensitive way, regardless of how it impacts other people. Uh, not seeking our own way and demanding to have things our own way. Not being easily provoked with this sort of victim complex that's always uh, finding fault. And, and, and thinking no evil. That, that fits into the pattern here. And, and it goes on with various other things that Lord willing will consider in the future. But he's saying it's our daily conversation and lifestyle in relation to other people that serves to verify and vindicate or discredit our claim to being a Christian. It's not our great achievements. It's not our great accomplishments. It's not even the spiritual gifts that God may pour out on His church to the point where Judas is preaching the Gospel and perhaps people are being saved. He's performing miracles and lame people are walking. The blind are seeing. Um, Saul was among the prophets. Balaam was a prophet in some sense. We can go on and on. Uh, It's not the outward manifestation of giftedness in the church. It is Christian love in the daily grind. That is the most definitive demonstration of true Christianity. It's not to say that we disregard doctrinal faithfulness. Obviously, we're going to get to verse 6 where he speaks of rejoicing in the truth. So it's not just love devoid of truth, but in the context of making a profession of the Christian faith, that is most clearly seen in a heart and a lifestyle of love. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, it is incumbent upon every one of us who will be at that table to examine ourselves in this area. Why? Because the Lord's Supper, Jude calls, a feast of love. A love feast. The Lord's Supper is commemorating Christ who loved us and gave up His life that we might have forgiveness of sins. He loved us and gave Himself for us. This is a feast, a celebration of God's love for us in Christ. That's what it is. It's many other things. We can speak of it as a covenant renewal, but it's a marriage covenant renewal. You can't get away from love at the center of the Lord's Supper. And so before we come to this table... We need to be examining our love for God, our love for Christ, our love for the brethren, our love for our family, our love for others, even our neighbor, even our enemies. Uh, You can find that in, in the larger catechism, an emphasis there on examining ourselves. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? We need to examine our love for God, our love for Christ. But also, John says, it's easy to profess, I love God and then hate my brother, but 
how can you love God whom you've not seen if you don't love other people that you have seen? So we need to examine how we treat other people. That's what Paul's pointing out here in this part of the text. Now, as we look at this statement that love, among other things, thinks no evil, we see here that true Christian love is contrary to a critical spirit. True Christian love is contrary to a critical spirit, or we might say a judgmental spirit or a fault-finding spirit. These are different ways to say the same thing. True Christian love is contrary to a critical, judgmental, and fault-finding spirit. That's what he's saying when he says love thinks no evil. Love doesn't reckon evil. Love, we might say, doesn't make unnecessary and uncharitable judgments concerning other people. Now, what do we mean when we speak of a critical spirit? A critical spirit. Well, a critical spirit is going to be manifested in our words and actions. It would, it would be pointless for us to think about a critical fault-finding spirit and just confine it to you know, the space between our ears. The fact is that when we have a critical heart, a critical fault-finding heart or spirit, that out of that heart or spirit, the mouth is going to speak. So whatever kinds of issues we have with a censorious or fault-finding spirit where we're imputing and accounting and reckoning evil to people in a way that is unloving and uncharitable, whatever we say about that, we need to reckon with the fact that it's, it's our heart and out of that comes our words and out of that comes our actions. So it's the whole person and the whole lifestyle that is involved. And yet it begins in the spirit. When we speak critical fault-finding words, when we express uncharitable judgments, it's because those uncharitable judgments are emanating out of a heart that is critical and judgmental. Uh, The Proverbs tell us that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if we think, well, I've expressed an uncharitable judgment towards somebody else, therefore I have a critical spirit, a critical heart, But you see, it doesn't stop there. If I have a critical heart that's thinking critical thoughts toward other people in the way that Paul speaks here, love thinks no evil. If I'm thinking evil, then as I think in my heart, so am I. So it's not just my speech, it's not just my heart or my spirit, but it's also who I am. It's my thoughts, it's my attitudes, it's my mentality, it's my disposition. Uh, it's in some sense my identity, my personality. And we have to comment here that some of us, and and examining myself, perhaps I'm among them, uh, have a personality that's prone to analyze, prone to put things under the microscope. And when my sinful flesh is uh, sort of at the wheel, I'm walking in the flesh, I veered off of the path of righteousness, then I can use that microscope to a wrong end. And I can develop a critical spirit. It's good to be critically minded or to have, a, to have a critical thinking, if you will. It's good to be um, careful in our analysis of things. It's good to be able to analyze and make judgments. But the fact is 
that when the flesh gets hold of this God-honoring ability that we have, for some of us, uh, this particular personality trait, it can be disastrous. And it's not an excuse for me to say, well, that's my personality. It's not an excuse because this text is dealing with our personality. It's dealing with our identity. It's saying you're saying something that's uncharitable and therefore that's the thought of your heart. And as you're thinking, so are you. So who you are, what your personality is, needs to change. You need to be a new creature. You need to be putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ Jesus. So again, we need to be careful here that we recognize the centrality of the heart and that we also recognize that it's no excuse to say this is who I am. Because if it is who we are, then we need to be something else by the grace of God in terms of our habits and our personality. A critical, judgmental, fault-finding spirit. What do we mean by that? Critical, judgmental, fault-finding. This involves a tendency to make uncharitable judgments or to express those judgments verbally. And we can think of numerous examples of how this takes place. If we examine our own lives, probably it's very easy if we're honest and with the Holy Spirit's help to identify the many ways in which we do this, perhaps every single week in one way or another. It's a common sin. And some examples would be speculative judgments where uh, there's a lack of evidence, but we, we sort of piece things together and fill in the gaps in our assessment of other people or of other people's actions, other people's words. Uh, we, we assume the worst. We put a negative construction on their words, their actions, or their own character itself. Uh, we can very easily be motivated by the flesh to engage in mind reading and speculation seeking to uncover sins that may or may not actually be present in a person's life. Even worse, seeking to read and interpret people's motives. We don't like when people judge us by our motives. We want people to judge us by what we actually said, what we actually did. But in our flesh, we have a temptation to judge people very differently than we want to be judged ourselves and to to impugn motives and develop conspiracy theories about different people and why they do what they do. And there's a snowball effect due to these speculative judgments. Oftentimes, these kinds of judgments are not specific. They're not specific instances. Like Matthew 18, here's a specific offense, and it's presented in a constructive way so that the person can see the offense, repent of the offense, and... We can all be reconciled moving forward, advancing Christ's kingdom, but too often these types of judgments are mere generalizations that are almost impossible to resolve because it's not actually a specific thing. It's this general tendency and label that's put on a person. We can also make hasty judgments where we won't hear both sides. Proverbs says it's foolish and yet we do it. Uh, I do it, happens to me, I'll hear something from one person and start to develop uh, assessments and judgments about something before I hear the other side. That's a hasty judgment. It's a rush to judgment. Uh, When we do that, in many cases, we're just basically allowing gossip to wreak havoc on the reputations of others. 
we can make partial judgments, or we might say biased judgments. Partial being the opposite of impartial and objective. So when we make judgments that are uh, biased against our rivals or enemies, so people that are threatening us, people that are getting in our way in whatever way, shape, or form, we begin to develop biased judgments against those people. Other people who are our allies or our friends at any given moment, or maybe we have a long-standing friendship with a person or they're a family member or loved one, uh, we can have a bias in their favor. It doesn't matter what they do, we're going to just look the other way. It's not a big deal. After all, it's just so-and-so. We can develop a double standard. And it's really based in self-interest. We can have a double standard in which we treat other people and assess other people by one standard, and then we assess ourselves by a far more lenient standard, expecting others to give us the benefit of the doubt. We can also have disproportionate judgments, where when I say disproportionate, I mean there's a disproportionate, there's a disproportionate amount of criticisms. Like, so if you, in your speech toward other people, are more frequently bringing accusations and criticisms and confrontations, and you're less frequently giving thanks, appreciating them, encouraging them in various ways, then your judgments are in some sense disproportionate. Your speech is disproportionate. You're bringing negative comments, criticisms in an unrelenting kind of way. There's just nonstop negativity. That's how people may perceive you. And this is a problem. It's a problem because, as I'll say later on, it's a problem because it discredits legitimate judgments that you may have to share, but if you're not selective and you don't balance it out with the positive comments, then you know, it's like the, the boy who cried wolf, and, and what you have to say is not taken as seriously. And so um, there's also the tendency to exaggerate minor offenses. And so we might express judgments about something that's wrong, but we might exaggerate how significant this particular error or offense is. You see this frequently on internet forums and theological debates where there might be a teaching that has problems. There's a particular preacher who said something that's problematic. It needs to be corrected. And certain people are far too quick to the trigger to immediately call the person a heretic. Now, most people are... uh, most people aren't quick enough to the trigger to call people heretics when they need to be called heretics. So that is a thing as well. But when we're too quick to the trigger to exaggerate what is in many cases a minor offense or a minor error, we discredit ourselves. And if everybody's a heretic, then nobody's a heretic and nobody takes it seriously at all. So we need to be careful, uh, especially, again, thinking of our personalities. There are many of us that don't mean to be negative. In fact, our love language may actually be fixing problems. And so we're trying to fix problems, and we're doing it because we genuinely do love people. We have to be aware and have antennas to recognize that what may be a love language for one person is not a love language on the other end of that equation. And so we need to be sensitive there and try to balance out our speech so that when we do have an issue to deal with, people are more likely to to receive it 
as part of a balanced diet of communication. We can also have competitive judgments. You think of Daniel's competitors, these rivals in the kingdom of Babylon, or was it Medo-Persia? Let's find out. Daniel chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 in, uh, yes, it was Medo-Persia. We're told that uh, Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could, not find, uh, they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. You can see explicitly in the text, they have a fault-finding spirit. They're on a mission to find something wrong with Daniel. And that can often happen when we, we become competitive with others. We view other people around us as our rivals. Children, if there's, if there's ever a disagreement between a brother and a sister, or between two siblings in the home, if there's a disagreement and maybe there's one cookie left, and one of you, both of you want the cookie, okay? And you know that only one of you can get it. And you both want to get there first. Or you both want to tell mom and dad why you need to get that cookie and not the other person. And so you begin to remind mom and dad what your brother or sister did wrong. How, how they were talking back to mom earlier in the day. And why they don't deserve the cookie. And then the other person, the other child tells mom and dad, Hey, what about what brother said? earlier today when he refused to clean his room or whatever it is. And you're competing for that cookie and so you begin to make accusations to try to put down other people so you can get what you want. Now this happens not just among children, it happens among adults. And we can become competitive and have rivalries with other people. It can even happen in a marriage where we're constantly trying to score points to vindicate our narrative of what's happening and what's wrong in the family. And so we're actually keeping a record of wrongs, which I think is at least one helpful gloss on our verse. Love doesn't reckon evil. It doesn't think evil. It doesn't keep a record of evil. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. But when we're competing, we find it difficult to rejoice in the truth we're almost tempted to rejoice in iniquity and to to be glad that the the other person made a mistake so that we can remind them of it, so we can win the argument, so that we can be victorious in our little feud and vindicate our narrative. And we can often, because of that, even if there's a genuine point that we have to make that the other person did commit iniquity, uh, we can be proud, we can be demeaning and condescending. We can be filled with a spirit of superiority And ultimately, insecurity, because we feel like in order to build ourselves up and advance our claims to the cookie, we have to bring other people down, rather than simply being content to be who we are. So there are these competitive judgments. There are also defensive judgments. The Lord Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, confronted the teachers of the law for their sin. He confronted the Pharisees and various religious 
teachers and leaders of that day. In Luke 11.52, we're told, he says, Woe to the lawyers! Woe to you lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently. They're attacking him. And to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. So here you have the Pharisees. They don't like what Jesus is saying about them. He's confronting sins in their lives. So they get upset about it. And so they try to put him under the microscope. They want to find fault. They have a critical spirit. Uh, They have a judgmental spirit. And they're trying to find fault with the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't like the way He's confronting their sin. This is often how we react in the home. Someone confronts us, children, if your mother or father confronts you for your sin and says you did something that was wrong, you did something bad, there's a temptation in your heart to try to think of something that mom or dad did that was wrong and bad. To think of a time when your father or your mother said something or did something that was sinful and then you have a temptation to confront mom and dad. To say, mom and dad, but you sinned too. And, and you did this. And even in this situation, you haven't handled it properly. And uh, because they've confronted you for sin, you immediately, uh, and, and applied to the whole congregation, this is a reality for adults, we want to put people under the microscope and find fault with them. Why? So that we can defend ourselves. And oftentimes we end up conjuring up accusations that before we were confronted didn't exist at all, were never even mentioned. But the moment we feel that we're on the defensive, there's bitter retaliation, there's unrelenting scrutiny, and how quickly those tables can turn. We can have outdated uh, judgments, outdated judgments, where we keep that record of wrongs, and we keep it in our back pocket as an insurance policy. So that if we ever are confronted by somebody in our family, maybe there's some sin, some minor sin that somebody committed, uh, whether they maybe they've even repented of it, but you keep it in your back pocket as a husband or a wife, and whenever you need it to get out of trouble, you just lay that card on the table. You've got your uh, insurance policy in your back pocket, something that In the past, in many cases when this happens, it's something that was long since resolved. There's been repentance. There's been reconciliation. um, Or it's something that's been long forgotten. And of course, the danger in a situation like this, and really the, I, I think the reason that we're tempted to use this type of a judgment in a situation like that, is because it is forgotten. Uh, because it is a minor offense, not some, um, not some monumental scandalous thing, but something where somebody said something and now you can quote them and, and take all kinds of liberties in tweaking what they said because frankly they can't remember exactly what they said or how they said it. And it's very easy to take people to the cleaners in terms of an argument by going back three years, five years, ten years 
and saying, well, you did this and you said that, and it's long after there's any ability to go back and identify who's right or who's wrong. And it just puts them really in a vulnerable position. Uh, it's, it's a clever tactic. It's not a godly tactic. But it does happen. Uh, un, outdated, untimely, unseasonable judgments. Unsympathetic judgments. Uh, where we label people rather than loving them. Where we discredit people rather than promoting their discipleship and their correction in specific areas. At times we may have uh, such a lack of sympathy because we're motivated by an impulse. We're irritable. We're upset for various reasons. We're impatient for one reason or another. And so we lash out with critical comments that honestly with a clear head, we, we ourselves might even reevaluate why we're making these judgments and these accusations against people. Uh, but in any case, we just lack sympathy. We're not putting ourselves in their shoes. Uh, the last example I'll use is, is one that really helps tie things together, and that is unnecessary judgments. We have to remember that judgment is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's part and parcel of the Christian church. Judgments have to be made. Someone who lacks judgment is a fool. Uh, we need to be able to discern. We need to have uh, critical thinking skills. We need to have that microscope where we look at things and evaluate things. We don't want to be like the fool who just believes every word. We don't want to be naive. Uh, so judgments need to be made. The Lord Jesus Christ, though He famously said, judge not, uh, that you be not judged. We'll get to that passage later, but uh, you know most people in the broader Christian world like to quote that, judge not, but in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ commands us to make judgments in many cases. You, you can see that in John 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We need to evaluate teachings to see if they're biblical. We need to judge a tree by its fruit. We need to make judgments not according to appearance, uh, but according to truth. Jesus commands us in a whole host of areas, in the family, as parents, husbands making decisions as head of the home, parents making decisions in leading their children. Children need to have judgment. Uh, there are times when uh, ungodly parents will command their children to do things that they ought not to do. So people under authority need to have judgment and biblical discernment in the family. In the church, there needs to be judgment in terms of electing elders and deacons. People who vote in officer elections need to be careful and use judgment. There needs to be judgment in terms of church discipline, judgment in, in so many facets of the Christian church. There has to be judgment in the state, obviously, in terms of the criminal and civil justice code. There needs to be judgment and discernment in business. Uh, if you hire someone to do a job for you, you need to look at the job they've done before you pay for it and decide, have they done everything they said they were going to do? And if they haven't, maybe something needs to get worked out. And if it can't get worked out, you need to have the judgment to say, I'm going to hire somebody else the next time. You see, you, you don't want to be a sitting duck, a naive person. 
you need to understand how to make good and righteous and faithful judgments. But even the Lord Jesus Christ understood that for Him, there were instances where He was asked, even asked to make a judgment that was an unnecessary judgment. It wasn't part of His calling. It wasn't something that God had called Him to do. And so, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13, we're told, Then one from the crowd said to Him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But He said to them, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is saying, I'm not a civil magistrate. When the Pharisees came to Him with the woman caught in adultery, He didn't you know, take authority over the situation and have her stoned according to the Old Testament law. Jesus did not take on the calling of a civil magistrate in His earthly life. There were judgments that He was not called to make. And so the Lord of glory, the King of kings, actually refrained from unnecessary judgments that it was not important for Him to make. Proverbs 26, verse 17 gives us some some general counsel here. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. And if you've ever done this, not taking the dog by the ears, but uh, meddled in a quarrel not your own, um, I've done it before, and this is accurate. It's not fun, okay? The emphasis of the proverb is not on how bad it is and how sinful it is to meddle in a quarrel not your own. Yes, it's sinful. It's an unnecessary judgment. But the emphasis here is something many of us can relate to, that when we've made that foolish decision to meddle in something that's not our own, it backfires big time. And that has happened enough times to me to humble me, but also to teach me to try to do a better job of not meddling in a quarrel that's not my own. Jesus didn't do it. We ought not to do it. It's a dangerous and unpleasant thing. Uh, And we can only uh, imagine uh, what, what it's like I don't know, maybe you've taken the dog by the ear and it's bit you. It's not a fun situation. So, unnecessary judgments. We need to make sure that we focus on the things God's called us to do and not go beyond it. Now, we've said that this critical, judgmental, fault-finding spirit is contrary to Christian love. Now, obviously, Paul is highlighting love for our neighbor, but it's also contrary to Christian love for God. If we love God, if we acknowledge God as the only true and living God, the ultimate authority, the judge of all the earth, then we're not going to seek to make unnecessary and certainly not uncharitable judgments because in a sense that encroaches upon God's authority. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament. So for instance, Romans chapter 14, verse 4. Paul's dealing with a situation where improper judgments were being made. We're not going to get into the context, but I think it at least falls into probably at least one of the examples that we gave earlier. He says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So, when we take on more 
authority. We, we make judgments that are beyond our place and calling. We're really encroaching upon God's authority as the Lord and Master of His servants. And that's obviously not loving. Uh, we find in verse 10 of the same chapter, but why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a sense in which when we take the position of Christ with unnecessary judgments, we say, who made me a judge over this or over that? I'm just going to let that play itself out. It's not my calling to get involved. When we do that, we're honoring God as the chief judge and master and Lord over His people. And so it's an act of love, recognizing God's exclusive supreme authority. Uh, James chapter 4 makes the same point. James 4 verse 11 Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother. Now again, we've said there are necessary and good judgments to be made, but it's fair to say this is speaking of something on our list here somewhere of an uncharitable or improper judgment. But he says, He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So if we're engaging in any of these sinful forms of judgment, we're actually again encroaching upon God's sole authority as the one lawgiver. We're usurping. We're we're seeking to take His place. It's not loving. This is also contrary to our Christian love for our neighbor. Jesus makes the point in the Sermon on the Mount that we're often tempted and we often fall prey in our flesh to unjust judgments, inconsistent hypocritical judgments. Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck, that is a speck of wood, in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So judgments are necessary. We need people in the church that are able to remove specks from people's eyes. So we shouldn't get into this uh, sort of spiritual pacifism where nobody confronts anybody for anything. But the point is, if we're going to be in a position to remove a speck from somebody else's eye, we need to be careful that we've examined ourselves first and that we've developed a pattern of consistently securing our own mask before assisting others consistently living out certain things and then helping other people in those areas where we have a consistent example and witness. And that is not unattainable. That should be the norm. And I'm not saying that it's not the norm, but I'm saying that Jesus is warning us against this inconsistent, hypocritical, fault-finding spirit where we essentially despise and reject and accuse other people of things that in principle we ourselves are guilty of. 
to the point where we may be guilty of them far more than they are. They've got a speck of wood. We've got an entire log in our eye. Uh, Jesus has a sense of humor here, but he makes the point. It's not a, it's not a comical thing. It's convicting, uh, and it's frightening how far our hypocrisy can come, even in the Christian life. Uh, but we need to be aware of it. And Jesus goes on to give us a, a helpful principle by which we can cultivate true biblical judgments that don't stray into these unbiblical forms of judgment. And it's right in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 and verse 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is, of course, the golden rule. This is the lens through which we can rightly perceive other people and ourselves and be, be able to live a godly Christian life where we're not living in hypocrisy with logs in our eyes. And it gives us the lens by which to see things in other people where we can encourage them and instruct them and bring concerns to them. But the guiding principle is how would I like to be confronted about this, right? And oftentimes, when we try to justify and defend our actions, when we make uncharitable judgments, or we share judgments in an uncharitable way, uh, it, it, listen, it always fails this test. Uh, you can always tell an uncharitable judgment when the way you're expressing that judgment to somebody else, you would never want anybody to do it in that way to you, ever. With the sort of tone of voice, the condescending attitude, the superiority, the demeaning mindset, all of these things, um, so often this is the way to, to unmask an uncharitable judgment. Is this the way that you would like to be confronted about your sin? Are you confronting that person in the kind of way that would cause you to be receptive, that you would welcome? Now, you can only live at peace with people in so much as it depends upon you. They may still be like the dogs, and eventually you don't throw what is holy to the dogs or they'll rend you to pieces. But the point is, are you dealing with sins in other people and making judgments in a way that you would want them to deal with you at that level? Uh, this is the way. This is the, the, the principle, the formula that we need to consider. We are very mindful of what we think and what we prefer and the way we want people to treat us. We're obsessed with it. We're always thinking about how somebody should have said it this way and not that way with this or that tone of voice. They should have said this. They shouldn't have said that. We're obsessed with how we like things and we have an excess of it. Well, what do you do when you have too much of something? You recycle it. So take our self-interest, the excess of concern about what we think, what we like, and now take it and recycle it and begin to use those insights to be sensitive to what other people may want, what other people may like. We're not very different, my friends. What offends you is likely to offend other people. A tone of voice that causes you to get upset is very likely to upset somebody else. A condescending spirit that bothers you is likely to bother the person that you're about to confront. So think about how you can confront someone and make these judgments and these assessments and communicate in a godly way Here's a fault, here's an offense, let's talk about it in a way that you yourself 
would not mind being confronted. Consider the golden rule. This is the, the, the thing that Jesus says, on this, hang the law and the prophets. Uh, the substance of biblical ethics throughout the law and the prophets, they hinge, they hang on this, this golden rule. So think about it. doesn't mean that every time you confront someone, they're going to be thrilled about it and not get upset. But it does mean that you're putting yourself in a best possible scenario. And the more people sense that you're trying to deal with them in a way that you would want to be treated, people have antennas for this. The more they sense that you're at least trying to do that, even if you stumble and bumble around, they're going to be more patient and they're going to put up with it and they're going to hear you out because they see that you're trying to be consistent. They see that you're approaching them humbly. They see that you don't think you've got it all together. You're just bringing something up maybe that God taught you and a sin that you've fallen into and you're sharing it with them. You do it in a humble way, in a winsome way, in a charitable way. You don't come with conclusions. You come with concerns. And you let these things work themselves out step by step. The golden rule is the key. Now, there are several reasons for us to avoid a critical spirit. What are some of those reasons? First, experience teaches that these kinds of uncharitable judgments, these kinds of hasty, speculative judgments are often unreliable. When we don't judge in God's way in the situations God's called us to judge, where He's put us in a position to have the knowledge and the ability to do these things, when we stray from biblical judgments, experience teaches us that these things are unreliable. And so you have many examples in the Scriptures, such as when the tribes on the east side of the Jordan River built an altar, and the other tribes basically prepared for war and gathered uh, in the presence of these other tribes. They said, you've built a rival altar to the, to the altar at the tabernacle. You're going to be worshiping other gods or you're going to be worshiping in an unbiblical way outside of God's prescribed order at the tabernacle. And so they were about to declare war. But you see, somebody got the idea, well, let's, let's talk to them. Let's talk this out first. Always a wise thing to do. And eventually they came to realize that this altar was merely a memorial to remind the Transjordan tribes of their solidarity and their unity with the other tribes and the need for them to worship at God's house at the tabernacle with the altar there. So that sort of hasty and speculative judgment almost led to great bloodshed among the people of God. It was unreliable. You think of Eli the high priest when he saw Hannah coming and praying under her breath at the tabernacle and Eli immediately confronts her with the sin of drunkenness. He thinks that she, she was talking to herself like some kind of a vagrant drunkard walking around the temple court or the tabernacle and um, nothing could be further from the truth. She was a godly pious woman who was just praying under her breath in spiritual communion with God Himself. Unreliable. Many other examples could be given, even from our own lives, perhaps. Another reason to avoid a critical spirit. God threatens to chasten it. We read in Matthew chapter 7 that in the way that we judge others, 
God will judge us, even as His people. We heard uh, an exposition of the biblical doctrine of God's chastening and His discipline in the psalm meditation. And God says in Matthew 7, even for believers, that if we judge others in a harsh kind of way, then He's going to be strict with us. And, and that's one of the ways that God communicates to us and gets our attention when we're living with an uncharitable, judgmental spirit. And so this is something I've had to keep in the back of my mind on a frequent basis. If I'm frustrated with other people that are judging me and being critical about me, could it be that God is bringing them into my life in His providence to get my attention that I'm uncharitably judging other people? You see, that's something to consider. As we can sit here in a service like this and we can think, well, I hope so-and-so hears that. I'm going to text that sermon link to somebody else who's been treating me uncharitably. But the fact is, maybe God's brought that into your life because you're actually judging somebody else in an uncharitable way. So God has a way of chastening this sin. And so we really need to think about it in that way. This is dangerous. When we judge people in an uncharitable way, uh, chances are we're going to end up in that situation. And it's a very painful and troubling situation to be in. Thirdly, Satan uses these uncharitable judgments to distract you from your own duties. So 1 Corinthians 11, as we approach the Lord's table, Paul says, judge yourselves. Judge yourselves. God calls us first and foremost to examine ourselves, to examine our own lifestyle, to examine our own thoughts, our own words. It's not to say that we don't have other responsibilities as parents, as head of the household, as church officers, and so on and so forth. Of course, we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities with other people to confront our brethren and and exhort them to faithfulness. But first and foremost, we need to examine ourselves. And you see with the Pharisees, they were out there identifying all the sins out there, focused, missile-locked on everybody else's sins when they themselves were filled with dead men's bones and all uncleanness on the inside. So Satan uses this. Don't be distracted as you're preparing for the Lord's Supper in the week ahead. Don't be distracted by the sins of other people against you. Meditate upon your own duties. Bear your own load, as Paul says elsewhere in Galatians. Bear your own load, and then as you do that, maybe God will give you an opportunity to impact somebody else. Fourthly, I mentioned this already, but uncharitable judgments serve to discredit good and necessary judgments. And this this is so important. Because as I mentioned, we need biblical judgments to be taking place. We need every Christian in the church to be sensitive to correction, willing to hear feedback. I need it, you need it, we all need it. But you see, our hearts become hard when people abuse it. And so we don't want to abuse it. We don't want to harden other people's hearts against true biblical correction. Proverbs 25 verse, well, I'll just let that go. Let me hasten to a conclusion here. Uh, Some specific areas of application. Specific areas of application. What are some areas in our lives where we may be tempted more than other areas 
to have a critical, judgmental, fault-finding spirit? Well, first, relationships involving authority. Relationships involving authority. It's very easy for us if the police pulled us over for something or if an umpire called us out and we didn't like the call or the elders call us out and we don't like the verdict or our parents say this and we we don't agree with what they're telling us to do or not do. But we could go on down the list of all these different kinds of authority uh, situations. This is an area where we can easily be pulled into having a fault-finding spirit. Uh, When someone tells us something that we don't like, we're immediately tempted to try to discredit them and find fault with them so that we can sort of uh, dilute the force of the confrontation for our sin and find an excuse in what we perceive to be the faults of that authority figure. Uh, This can also be a problem towards those that are under our authority. Uh, And so we can very easily be making uncharitable judgments about our children. We can look at what our children are doing and be hasty in condemning what they're doing. We can develop a pattern of being uh, ornery and irritable and impatient with our children and not really looking at the whole circumstance and context. And we can find fault with our children. Or as elders, we can find fault with members of the church without really thinking it through from a biblical perspective, we can have a knee-jerk, quick-to-the-trigger reaction. And my friends, that is utterly devastating because it removes the dignity and honor of biblical authority and it just creates a situation of apathy and uh, causes people to be disillusioned toward authority. But it can easily happen because if we're in authority, well then, we're in authority. And, 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 And... how easily it can be abused at any level. Second area of application. Beware of echo chambers of evil speaking. Echo chambers of evil speaking where there's maybe a person that's done this or that and they've offended not just you but somebody else and one thing leads to another and you end up on a group text with people that are offended by this person or you end up spending time with people that have this common aversion to one person or another, and there's a snowball effect, and all of a sudden, there's this echo chamber of evil speaking that begins to exaggerate the sins of the person in question and to demonize them, and rather than leading to that person's repentance, according to Matthew 18, of a specific offense where you humbly approach them, hey, you know, I noticed this, let's talk about it, let's pray about it, here's what God's Word says. Instead, it, it just leads to total chaos and disunity in the family, in the church, uh, in whatever context in which it happens, where these, there are these roasting sessions of rivals and opponents and offenders. That cannot happen. Avoid it. It's toxic. It's a root of bitterness that defiles many. Finally, we need to beware of a critical, judgmental, fault-finding spirit within the realm of churches and denominations. Whether it be a local congregation, the danger of putting our local church under a microscope and being fault-finding and critical in our attitude and, and just not appreciating the positive things that God is doing, but rather 
sort of on a search and destroy mission to find flaws and find problems and be critical of what's happening. Rather than being the change that we want to see in the congregation and and realizing, hey, God's enabled me, best case scenario, to find an area where the church needs to improve, therefore, I should try to be a charitable agent of positive change. Instead, we become the accuser of the brethren. And that can be a big problem. It can be a problem among denominations. We can have feuds with other denominations. Now, over the last couple of years, I've heard of this thing happening on the internet, on social media forums, where you have people in different Reformed denominations, sometimes denominations that have so much in common, that, that have so much in common, the RPCNA and, and other Reformed denominations that sing the Psalms and have the same confession of faith, and there's so much that, that, that they have in common, and yet people are comparing and contrasting them and trying to one-up the other side and, 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 and so on and so forth competing and oversimplifying with uncharitable assessments one side against the other. And it's a huge toxic problem on the internet from what I hear. And it happens. People in the RPCNA, uh, from what I hear, will say things about other small confessional denominations and they will say things that are very uncharitable. And there will be people in some way perhaps connected with some of those smaller denominations that will make uncharitable generalized statements about the RPCNA. Brethren, these things should not be so. We need to look at the glass as half full. We need to look first and foremost at the things we have in common in our congregation, in our denomination, and with other denominations. Let's build on what we agree on. Let's be charitable in terms of the difference. And let's work toward gradual improvement. There are things we can learn from some of these smaller denominations who are a great blessing. And there are things from the RPCNA that can be very helpful for those groups as well. Let's work together. Let's stop competing. Let's stop putting other people, other denominations under the microscope trying to find the, the, the chink in the armor to somehow discredit them, viewing them as an opposition party rather than fellow citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is important. So my friends, if we're to have a loving attitude, if we're to come to the feast of love next Lord's Day evening with a clear conscience, we need to confess our sins of hatred. We need to confess our fault-finding spirit. We need to identify it. If we've done this to other people, we need to confess, hey, I've been overly critical. Forgive me. We need to work through this. We need, by God's grace, to find forgiveness through Christ and grace to make judgments, staying in our lane, focusing on God's calling in our life in a gracious and charitable way that we would want from someone who's confronting us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are love itself. You loved us and gave Your only begotten Son to be our Savior. Having received Your love, we pray that You would fill our hearts with that love and that that love would flow forth to our brethren, to our neighbors, to our, even our enemies and opponents. We pray that above all, our love would resound and return back to You our great God, whom we love dearly. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.